you know, you have to create your own world and you have to create, as I said, you have to create a brand to become successful. And you, the notion of sculpture was the tool for me to bring all the other techniques also in. So I also, when I draw, I make sculptures. And also when I make a video, I call it sculpture. And also when I paint, I make a sculpture, I make flat sculptures. So this was my tool to concentrate my entire world on the notion of sculpture. It's a technique to, you know, to concentrate and to focus on certain things. And yeah, it, it worked. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour to the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Before we get started, make sure you sign up for our new weekly newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at either the link in my Instagram bio, at Dan Rubenstein, or at thegrandtourist.net. You'll get all the updates on the podcast, along with news and exclusive stories from the worlds of design, art, style, and more. It's my little personal cheat sheet to the world of The Grand Tourist, and I know you'll enjoy it, so sign up at thegrandtourist.net. Now, back to the show. My guest on the program is one of the most fascinating sculptors working today. Imagine entering his latest exhibition, Trap of the Truth, at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park in England, and approaching a large mobile home you can walk inside. The interior looks like an ordinary camper in kitschy retro decor, but there's an elevated bunk bed of sorts and holes on the ceiling. You're encouraged to climb up and awkwardly stick your legs outside of the holes in a precise manner. In doing so, you become one of the artist's so-called one-minute sculptures, where through precise instructions and a deft manipulation of the ordinary, you help him to create a sublime work of art. Elsewhere in the exhibition, you find large outdoor sculptures of suitcases with dangly legs about to kick you in the ass, or a car made from metal that appears to melt in the sun. In this artist's world, humor and seriousness meld together to reveal a higher truth. Erwin Verm. Erwin, born and bred in Austria, has provoked discussion for more than three decades with his work. Growing up with a stern police detective for a father in a conservative part of the country, our second such guest this season, actually. Irwin found a career where his art can rebel in a quiet way. His career took a turn during a dark period in his life, more on that later, and gave rise to the invention of his one-minute sculptures. He found fame with this participatory art form before the invention of social media, but cultural observers will remember his work being credited in the 2003 music video for Can't Stop by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the first video to fully credit an artist in such a manner. While all of this sounds like it can be created by a frivolous guy, I found Irwin to be one of those cool cats who doesn't take himself too seriously, but takes his work seriously indeed. For those that want something to watch this weekend, I highly suggest his 2012 documentary, The Artist Who Swallowed the World, which follows him while he makes his art, including his now famous Narrow House, a replica of his post-war childhood home in Austria squeezed into something half the size. I caught up with Erwin from his holiday home in Greece to discuss the disapproving gaze of his father during his youth, how he rebelled against the art establishment, what it was like to get a call from a rock band that would change his life, and the three words he wants written on his tombstone. I guess I'd love to start from the very beginning, um, become somewhat of a a, a legend of your of your early life is that your father was a detective and uh didn't so much agree with life as an artist um i'm kind of wondering was was life would you say that you had a very regimented childhood was your father kind of a strict guy my father was a strict guy yes but he was also lovely at the same time so it was an i didn't have a, a bad childhood it was very different, and at that time, of course, I, I, he slapped me also, and he is um, on the one side, on the other side, he was very tender and sweet, and um, the slaps, for example, at that time seemed normal. Later, many years later, I've realized it's, it was probably not so normal, but in relation to the time and the area and the country, it was very normal, so... As I said, I had a great childhood and um, everything f was fine. Or let let me say it differently: everything was fine until I confessed I want to become an artist. Uh, 
<laughs> this was a big drama <laughs> and a big um and a big uh fight was going on then and when did you when did you actually confess that you wanted to become an artist to him it's funny relatively early because i was first i was very fascinated by art painting especially and uh then one of my friends in the neighborhood he became a painter he was he became an artist he was two years older and he had long hair and i loved that at that time it was uh it was great and so in a way he um i liked what he was doing and everything what he was representing for me young and wild and long hair and artist wow this was something special so this was one of the reasons why i decided pretty fast i want to become an artist but you know this was more on the surface and i would say it was around 16 or 17 so yeah but um it was a big it was a big thing because my father not at all liked it and uh it was a big drama and when you uh when you were young were there anything that did you like to draw as a child yeah i i drew a lot of, of funny enough very little drawings with very small figures very tiny maybe because we you know we had a we, we were living in a, in a, in a, in, a, in a small apartment and i also started to make little sculptures little stones and silver wire and or metal wire and i was uh combining these things together and i was it was very playful of course and i had these little collections of little sculptures standing in in front of my bookshelf and also all these little drawings unfortunately um uh, none of those pieces survived i think my sister threw everything away later but it's okay <laughs> and when when you decided to go to school how did you decide what to what to study and where to go well, my parents decided first, so I, I, I had to go to the normal, what is it called, primary school in, in Oslo, mm -hmm. Volksschule, and then I went to the gymnasium, which is a, I think it's high school, right? Uh, but it's in Austria, it's, it was nine years, and um, we got a fantastic teacher in the fifth grade who was very much into art. He was an artist himself. And he supported me a lot. And he also realized there is something, you know, the boy has maybe a talent or so. And definitely enthusiasm about art. And so for that reason, he became my protégé, my, my, my teacher. And uh, it was great to work with him. And he showed me many, many uh, things from the art history and artist books and things like that. And uh, it was fantastic. So his name was Norbert Nestler. I really very grateful for what he did and unfortunately some years some years ago he passed away and yeah it this was fantastic and did you uh were there any artists uh, as a young man that you sort of idolized you really looked up to oh yes oh yes at the very first it was the surrealists like dali and max ernst and then there was in austria a specific artist group which was called wiener fantastische realismus viennese fantastic realism it was like so a, a little bit there were surrealists in a but let's say the second row surrealists like um as fuchs nobody knows him nowadays and lame uh, and power and all these people and i i was very fascinated by this you know, hyper-reality or uh, surrealistic reality, and this tricked me in. But then pretty soon after this came Picasso, I became fascinated by Picasso, and then in a way I made, because I was also very much interested in art history and old art, so I started also, also to like old uh, painters, classical painters, like Vermeer van Delft or many others, Beugel and Hieronymus Bosch, and then later on uh, Rembrandt and the Italian. So in a way, I made a course through art history um, in my mind, and um, I liked many of these painters and non-sculpt. I was not interested in sculpture at that time, so it was mainly painting. What, attacked, what attracted me a lot. And then I started to paint myself. I would, so, I would say around 15 or so. And I got um, oil paint and canvases and I started to paint crazy things. And yeah, this went on very intensively, very intense until um, we had to decide what to do. Um, 
because after then we, we call it Matura, which is the master, I think, in the States. I don't ah, know. Okay. It's the end of the um, high school. Then you are uh, get the, the degree to uh, pass to a university. And I wanted to study art, but, but my father said, no, no, no way. First, you have to make, um, first, you have to learn a profession that eventually later you can become an artist. He was hoping that I would forget my dream becoming an artist then. So I decided, I decided because it was short to become an art teacher. So I, I went into this art teaching academy, which lasted three years and I studied, um, art and German language and parallel on the university art history and German language also. And this was going on for three years and then I was finished. And then I became a teacher on a, what is it called? Teacher for for 10 to 14 years old um, uh, children. Okay. It's called Hauptschule. I don't know the equivalent in English. Maybe like a middle school and, for us. Um, yes, a middle, right. It, it was a middle school, but I only was teaching for two weeks because then I... I had enough, and I went to the um, to make the exam <laughs> test to, to to the to the art school, and I I got in, and everything was fine. So I moved to Salzburg. The second studies um, because my father was hoping at that time that I would have forgotten. Uh, I wanted that I wanted to become an artist. So, but I was still I wanted it very strongly and intensively, and I was very stubborn. So at the end, he said, "Okay, we'll do what you want." So I went to Salzburg, and. But funny enough, they didn't accept me in the painting class. They put me in the sculpture class. And this was a big disaster for me because, you know, I was thinking, dreaming, become a painter and uh, going on with paint and canvases and all these great masters I was attached and I loved. And then all of a sudden it was a big stop and a shock. So what, what do you do then? And um, I was frustrated first and unsure and... Uh, didn't know what to do, but then after a while, I accepted the challenge and I thought, well, take it as a chance. And um, from that point on, I started to work and research on the notion of sculpture. What is it? What does it mean, a sculpture? What does it mean at that time in my presence in our society to make sculptures? What does it mean? Can I relate sculptural notion to daily life, to our issues, issues of the world, and things like that? And at the time when you were studying sculpture, what was the the culture of sculpture like in school? What were people? What were your teachers teaching you? Sculpture was what was that kind of understanding at the yeah, time? Yeah, it was. We had a we had a teacher. He was. Um, um, uh, let's say he had a classical opinion of uh, of sculpture. So we, uh, of course, at that time we are speaking about the early seventies, mid seventies. Um, it was, you know, at that time, conceptual art, minimal art, pop art, and many other things were there. Joseph Beuys was also there, and Andy Warhol, and and many others. So it it was a, there was a strong movement, and there was a, a sculpture was very important and very strong at that time. And slowly, slowly, I discovered it for me. And slowly, slowly, I grew into this and realized how wonderful and how beautiful and how, how great all the possibilities and chances I could do. So, I, you know, everybody was influenced at that time by Marcel Duchamp, who was one of the most important figures in the 20th century about art. Uh, he started to use ready-mades, things which already existed. He just transformed them and said they're a piece of art now. So all this background and all this history was very uh, fascinating. And we could, in a way, I could start uh, using many things and everything was possible. And it was a great movement. And I loved it. I loved it, really. So this was the beginning. And, you know, after... After school, uh, I, I don't know much about your early career before the one-minute sculptures, and I was wondering if you could explain that that period of your life and, and your work. Sure. Um, so when I... Salzburg... I thought Salzburg is a great city. It is a great city, and I thought it's a great um, art university. It was a bit provincial, and I wanted to 
run away and uh, and leave the city ag again. And I took the chance one and a half years later to go to Vienna and to study with Bart von Brock. He was very very important and very big di a, a very big uh, teacher. He was involved in Fluxus art and um, uh, fantastic rhetoric person. He could talk like you would read a book print uh, in a print version. He could talk in a print version. So it was really fascinating. He was mixing philosophy and art history and psycho um, uh, psychology and science. So it was a, a fantastic situation. We came together and were discussing every week, uh, several days, and uh, with all the all my colleagues. And it was fascinating and fantastic. And um, uh, it was uh, now, let's say, 79. And at the same time, when I came to Vienna and st um, started to study in this um, academy, I um, met friends and we, um, uh, we had the first studio together. So I had a studio with, four other, with three other people, so we were four. And it was good because I couldn't afford to have a studio myself. It was not big at all. It was 100 square meters, so everybody had 25 square meters, which is like um, uh, 5 by 5 meters. It's really not big, but it was space just for me, and I could have my things there. And and the good thing was also under us there was um, um, a carpenter, and there was a lot of old wood, what they didn't use, and I was allowed to use this old wood. So um, as, I, as I had no money, and um, but nearly no money. I wasn't able to buy materials, and I wasn't able to um, buy machines and and uh, and tools and all this. So I basically had to use um, for my work things I found in my surroundings. So I started with these with these uh, boards and plates, wooden boards and plates from the carpentry. And I just nailed these uh, boards together and I created figures, kind of abstract, more or less figures. Um, um, but I thought also um, at that time, I've read a lot about philosophy and art history and art theory. And I thought, um, I've somewhere I've read that if you want to be successful in what you're doing, you have to overcome your fathers. Basically, you have to kill, kill your fathers. And um, I thought my father's were was the art at that time and the teachers at that time. So it was pop art, minimal art, conceptual art and all these things, land art and all these things. So I started to do something very contrary to this. So I started to make figurative sculptures in a very unusual way. I nailed boards together to strange figures. And because I was still longing to painting, I started to paint these boards. And uh, because I've also realized when you when you mount or when you nail two-dimensional boards together, you create a three-dimensional object which is which has in a way images or pictures. And beca because the boards, you know, a board is more or less two-dimensional. It's wide and long, but very thin. So I started to paint these boards, and then all of a sudden I found myself in the situation that I had painted sculptures, which fitted in this movement which came up at that at that time, which was called the Neue Wilde Malerei, the new uh, painting, or Transavantgarde, or in I don't know what it was called in the States. Um, but anyway, it were, it were all these new painters which popped up at that time, like Julian Schnabel and David Selly and um, uh, uh, Keith Haring and Basquiat. And in, and in Italy was the Transavantgarde, like um, Mimo Palladino and Enzo Cucci, Sandro Chia, Francesco Clemente, who is a friend of mine. And um, and in Austria there were also a group, and in Europe uh, there was the German group, um, the Mülheimer Freiheit. It's called after a, um, a district in Cologne. Uh, young young boys, young painters, wild painters, um, Dokobil and Walter Dahn and Peter Bermels and so on. So because I painted these sculptures, these creatures, what I did, and they were figurative, all of a sudden I fitted into this movement. And I had um, the first success. A gallery took me. We sold pieces. Critics were writing good. I got collectors, and it went on. So it was. I was on a on a train which was start to move, quite quick. I was. I, I finished my studies with twenty eight, 
And then, so it was my second study. So for that reason, it's so late. And then I could make a living already uh, around 29 or 30. And uh, I went on and I went on some years. And then I've realized, and then I, then I realized, wait a moment. Um, you do this, or I do this because of a certain reaction on something. Because as I told you before, I was reading um I should not. I should overcome my father's or the idea what others have. So I, I, I should do something else. So, my, my the basis of my artwork was a reaction on a certain opinion, and I said, you know, I was thirty at that time or twenty nine. I probably probably have still forty or fifty years in front of me, and this is not basic. Uh, uh, this is not a. Uh, this is not a good basis to have a a lifetime uh, work with the art. So I have to find my own theme and not my theme should not be a reaction on a certain opinion and reaction on a certain movement. So um, so I started to um, pull everything back and was looking or trying to find the zero, pain, the zero point of sculpture for me. It took two or three years. And 92, I came out with a new body of work and with my new ideas. And there it was. I decided to make um, a, a really a research on the, notion of, on the notion of sculpture with all its consequences. Means um, from two to three-dimensionality about mass and uh, volume, about skin and surface, about time and ma material and many other things. And then I tried to find an equivalent on our short-living period we were living in. Um, remember, Michelangelo um, said his sculptures could be rolled down a mountain and they st still should survive 500 years. And we, li we lived in a very different area and a very different time. Then everything was short-living. Nobody was repairing things anymore. People threw everything away. So I thought, uh, I have to find an equivalent to this short, short um existence or short period of time of objects in our in our in our lives this was the, the one um, aspect the other aspect was i tried to find to ask questions about our society um, not questions like where do we go and where do we come from like in the past like in the 60s and 70s and i have seen many artists dealing with these big questions but they used the work in a they used the word pathos a lot, so they became big, important, impressive uh, works where the spectator became very small in front of it and in a way pressured and in a way scared. So I wanted to create something what makes the people levitate and lift up and look up full of joy and of fun and of enlightenment in a way. So I thought my method has to be different. And I have to work about uh, psychological issues like embarrassment and ridiculousness and our uh, unsureness and all these things. And all these things became more and more and more important. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design where architects, interior designers and estates have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands with in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design. Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like... Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Colin King. Erwin Verm is known for his unmistakable sense of shape and a kind of ingenuity that's easy to spot. It brings to mind how important a point of view is in design, and especially when shopping for products that will stand the test of time. On Lumens.com, because they carry so many iconic brands you'd assume aren't even available online, you can shop by designer. It's one of my personal favorite ways to browse. And not just the obvious names either. Maybe you want a funky Italian lamp by Joe Colombo, or a multicolored rug by rising Belgian star Birch and Pot. Or maybe you want the ultimate conversation starter with a chair or sofa by Frank Gehry. To find your own masterpiece of design that's worthy of any art gallery, 
visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S.com. And uh, and, and in the documentary, uh, The Man Who Ate the World, uh, you explain that there was a shift. There was like a eureka moment for you where you had kind of a hellish year in your personal life. Yes. That that this is how some somehow helped you break this sort of romantic vision of of uh, suffering to create art. Yeah, yeah. Because it happened to me that I um, <laughs> uh, I I met my first wife, eighty eight, and um, soon after this, I I got my two sons, Lauren and Michael. Lauren was born nineteen ninety, and Michael was born ninety two. I started to have all these shows and I was traveling around and uh, I was not much at home and so the marriage began to be problematic and I think 1996 she left me or 95 I don't remember my father died 95 on cancer my mother died one year later on cancer and in between those two um, uh, tragic moments my ex-wife left me with the two kids. She went to Germany. She was from Germany, 1,000 kilometers away. So a big boom. It was a, I was devastated. Not only... I mean, it's it's more or less normal to um, lose your parents because everybody loses his parents. But still, it's, it's hurtful and it's painful and it's uh, traumatic. Uh, but then at the same moment when your, life, uh, your wife leaves you with the kids, this was devastating. So I was not able to work for one and a half years. I went to therapy and I was depressed. I had um, a reactive depression and it was really, really bad. I did not work at all. Then after a certain time, after one and a half years, um, long struggling and dark days, also the sun was shining, it was just horrible. And because I couldn't see, I wasn't allowed to see my kids because they were fighting for money and uh, they were scared that I would bring the boys back to Austria. And... um, so they for half, half a year I couldn't see the boys at all and then I could see them just for half an hour in front of the youth office. It was really dramatic and, and they said um, the boys don't want to see me but then I involved the judge and they said let's ask the boys and the boys said yes of course I would like to see the father. So it was really dramatic and terrible, 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 terrible. Anyway, after one and a half years um, I didn't feel much better but I could slowly start to think about work again. And I got an invitation to make a show in Bremen. Bremen, it's a German town. And um, I thought I would like to um, go there and try something out. Because I had this idea of short-living sculptures with um, every possible material which surrounds me. Because I've realized on my way, on my journey in the arts, that basically everything that surrounds me is a possible material for an art piece. In the past, remember, it was marble. So some artists were living close to a quarrel because where they could see the mountain with the marble, with the Carrara marble. And my quarrel was the world around me, everything what surrounds me, the phone, the glasses, the books, the table, the chair, the pins, everything was possible. So I, 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 I told this to <clears throat> the director of Prima. I spoke about this with, to, with, uh, about my wish that I would not like to ship an art piece, but to come and try things out for the exhibition. Um, I spoke with uh, Mr. Griese, who was at that time the director of the Kunstverein Bremen. And he said, yes, okay, let's do it. So it was very, this was very courageous from him. So I came day, day, 10 days in advance. Uh, they gave me a little uh, apartment there. Um, um, and I could start to work with all the materials I found there. And some employees, some people who were working there for the Kunstverein. And I started first to, to try everything out on myself. I made a video. It's called the, the one minute sculpture video where I try all, all these things out and they were, um, basically psychological phenomena phenomenons about um, failing and about um, embarrassment about failing and disruption and frustration and fun and then lightening up into joy and going down into depression again so it was an incredible weird mixture 
I tried everything out myself with the video. And then I asked uh, the people who were working there, and they were very grateful. They said yes to help me and to be my model. So I made all these uh, little sculpture creations with them. I asked them to uh, take a, a pen in their nose and stand still or, or to put an apple on the head and stand still for 10 seconds just for the picture. And they did it. So I made, I think it was, it was I don't remember, 50, piece, 50 images or 55 images or whatever. And then I showed the images there. And um, I was not sure if this was good art or not. I was not sure at all. But it didn't matter because before this, before my, my big drama in my life, I was very concerned that I would make good art because there was always this level of great artists and writers and philosophers and I, I knew them all by reading them and looking at their work and discussing things with my colleagues, but I could not reach in a way, I could not be connected to these ideas and to them. So I felt always outside, so something was missing. And all of a sudden, because I did not care if it's good art or not. I was there in a way. And um, it was strange because on the one side, as you said before, I did not believe in this romantic idea from the 19th century that an artist has to suffer to, to be able to make great work. But there it happened to me. Not great work, but work. And I didn't know that people would think it's good work so I was I was quite I was kind of unsure and and I remember I was only writing I think half a year in my entire life a, a diary at that time I did it and I found a note later which said uh, I don't know what it is if it's good or not I'm unsure I have no idea so I was very doubtful about this so anyway we showed it we made a little booklet and boom the booklet was sold out in three weeks and all of a sudden, slowly, I got phone calls and people told me when they came, curators, do you know that in France or in the States they love your work? I had no idea about this. So slowly something was going on, going on and growing and growing. This was the beginning of the one-minute sculptures, yes. Ah, yes, and I gave them the name because I wanted to create kind of a brand name because you have short living sculptures what do you do with this eh? you have to give them a name because you have to make them an um how can i say effect in the in in, in the art world because uh short living sculpture is very ephemeral so i had to really brand the name to make it uh, uh you know exist in the heads of the people so this one minute sculpture was a great idea so yeah and i went on with this and if I had to ask you, how do you define the the what is a one minute sculpture today? Yeah. How do you define that? It's a sculpture. It's actually it's an action between a person, a spectator, and an object. And the different possibilities. I make instruction drawings. Uh, that's one possibility that that you just read the drawings and imagine the piece in your head. Or then there's the photograph, because first I, I thought the pieces are so ephemeral and there's nothing what's left for the art markets and I need to sell pieces. And if I, if I cannot sell pieces, I cannot make a living and nobody will remember me because, you know, ideas are fading out quick. So I made snapshots from the one-minute sculptures, from the short-living sculptures. But the real sculpture is, um, the real piece is mostly a plinth or a platform or a pedestal with a drawing on it, with an instruction drawing and an object. And then I invite the people to step on the, uh, the plinth or the platform, follow my instructions and realize the piece for a minute. It can be 10 seconds or two minutes. does not count. It's short. And uh, this, the one-minute sculptures take off, and at, at some point, the Red Hot Chili Peppers music video can't stop happens. Yeah. And at the very end, it credits you as being the inspiration. But did you ever communicate with them yeah. at all or collaborate with them? Or no? Sure, sure, you did. sure, sure. No, they called. I mean, um, Mark Romanek's office called. Mark Romanek was the video director who made, uh, he was very famous at that time. He made mm -hmm. big pieces, epic videos for I don't know Janet Jackson and 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 the Rolling Stones and I don't remember all the big names. And then he called me and said, ah, "We would like to use your one-minute sculptures for the for the piece of the Red Hot Chili Peppers." And I said, "Of course, great, fantastic, but I want to be credited." 
They paid me also very well and I got credited. And mm-hmm. you know what? I think I was the first artist who got credited on MTV because I've seen many MTV videos and so many, <laughs> probably so many people, uh, directors stole from the artists, not mentioning them. All this, all these crazy ideas came from somewhere, and most many, many, many of these ideas came from the art world, from artists. So I got credited. This was big and great, and the video was played up and down, and I got invited <laughs> uh, <laughs> because of this, basically, to many talk shows and so on. <laughs> <laughs> and was that like a major one, like a turning point in your career? Did that help with? It was it was one or... uh, because all of a sudden what I always found um, you know the art world is important and it's great and you need galleries uh, to work with galleries is very important for the career and to have museum shows is even more important but it goes together and to have big group shows is important um, but I always found I also want to go out with my work into the public out outside the art world outside this restricted area anyway. And what is a contemporary space for art nowadays? It's the mass media. It's magazines, it's TV at that time, and the internet. So um, when when I started with the one-minute sculptures, and I've realized pretty soon after that, people started to steal my ideas and to use them, fashion photographers, advertisement photographers, fashion designers, all of a sudden came up with my ideas and um, made them their ideas. So I, I had to do something about this. Otherwise, it would have taken away from me. So I started to make... Um, uh, there was an, By the way, there was an, um, uh, an advertisement for Gap, the store Gap, in the states and I, I looked at it i saw the images and i thought are those my images i don't i didn't even remember when i did them but they looked so familiar that i was very surprised so i started to go forward and i got many many invitations from all these magazines to make shootings um but never advertisement but shootings one minute sculptures for the public so i made many many i made the vogue and new york times magazine and in china and in japan and in asia a lot and in in, in germany and german vogue and so on and so on so i made all these uh one minute sculpture shootings to bring the piece outside into the world that the people would realize oh it's evan worm who did it and I think it worked out quite well because nowadays many people realize, yeah, that's that's your piece, even if it's not done by me. And have you come to any sort of conclusions about where these boundaries are? Have you, over time, now that you've done done this so many times, has your sort of have you come to any yeah any um, ideas about where this has gone? My conclusion is also with the one minute sculptures, I have to be very strict with with this because my work is sometimes very close to the Klamauk to the fun and um, I'm, I, I do not want to, um, I'm not a, a, a joke teller. I want to work about the absurdity of our world and sometimes the paradox and uh, these aspects which are very intriguing to me. And um, my work is a tool to lead the spectator and myself into this direction because I've realized when we look on the uh, from the perspective of the absurd on our, on our world, we see more the reality because in our normal thinking hides the real reality. Um, and, but this I wanted to say, I have to be very strict with this because it's so close to the banal and to the absurd. I have to be strict and I have to monitor it. So the one-minute sculptures I only wanted to show in museum contexts. I always ask the people, if you perform a one-minute sculptures, please do it as if you would perform a yoga exercise. Do it with consciousness, do it with awareness, don't laugh, don't giggle, don't play around do it like a yoga piece and then all of a sudden it becomes a yoga piece or it becomes something similar it becomes more you know more uh more uh, people appreciate it more because and i got so many invitations from galleries or people they make parties or concerts oh Irwin, could you make a one minute sculptures for this party and could you make a one minute sculpture for that first birthday or for this thing i always said no because i wanted to keep it clean and only in the museum context to make it worth to keep it uh, special and to keep it in its on a certain level and this was most important uh yes no because that uh that answers the, another question that i was going to say about uh about about humor and 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 sort yeah. of trying to, you know, uh, draw that 
that kind of boundary. Um, it, this sort of brings up another uh, sort of concept about uh, these notions of humor about uh, the world of uh, exhibitions and the art market. And in the documentary, you said a few things that I thought were 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 some of my favorite lines. Um, that the art market is like a hyena, both sort of evil and good at the same time. Um, and then a gallery exhibition or like amputations, you can only see part of the work, which I thought was yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, kind of genius, kind of genius. Uh, have these exhibitions and, and your sort of interactions with the actual mechanism of the art world and the, the way that the industry works, has that gotten easier for you over time to, to put on exhibitions in a gallery or anything like that? There, there is something, there's this world, it exists in English, industry. If, if I would say mm. I work for the art industry in Austria and Germany, they would kill me because this is something very different <laughs> than what artists believe they work for. It's not we don't work for an industry. Mm. We, work our, we work for ourselves. <laughs> we work for eternity and we create ideas which are above every level of, um, of mercantilism and far away from, uh, from things which could be bought and, and could be uh, paid by a lot of money. But that's the fact. So we, we produce things and under some circumstances and under some conditions they become very valuable and very expensive and you have to live with this because as i said when and it's it's actually so true what i said it's like an amputation because the galleries always wanted to show the new things because they want to sell and that's important that they sell because then we can live and we create i i'm so happy that i'm able to live a great life but great life lives means for me to be able to create all my crazy works and I can travel around and I can make many exhibitions and show my work all over the place. And that's fantastic. That's my great life. And um, I'm so thankful for that. But this has a certain, this has certain rules. So in the, the galleries show new pieces in the museums, you can bring different pieces, different groups of pieces together and try to work on the content that people see. Ah, he's not only making this and this uh, and deadlines, but he creates a whole universe which fits together in a way. Because when you work more than 20 years, when you work 30 years, I really work now 40 years nearly. Yes, I work 40 years. <laughs> it's a long time. Then you have created, uh, in a way, a certain um, universe. And, um, and it's a system and it makes sense. And when you show an exhibition here and an exhibition there of only new work, mostly it doesn't make sense so much because you don't see that they're all connected, that they all come from a basic idea or from a basic idea line, basic basic line of ideas. So this is most important, yes. Before we return to Erwin Verm, a word from our sponsor, Ann Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Anne Sachs. Anne Sachs' latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs. The product designers at Anne Sachs have traveled the world to source a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, each with their own unique and dramatic veining and movement to create that organic, elegant feel in interiors. The company has just opened its newest slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. The inspirational new flagship location in Long Island City is a combination showroom and slab gallery, showcasing the full assortment of tile and slab collections, as well as in-stock vanities, lighting, and plumbing fixtures. For more information about any Ansacks tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www.ansacks.com. Um, and when it, when it comes to uh, uh, the fat sculptures and how, what was the, where was the genesis of that? How did that kind of, because uh, it, 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 of course, it deals with this concept of a second skin uh, or the boundaries between the person and the environment. But um, where did that begin? Yeah, but you? then I do not call them fat anymore, fat sculptures, because we live in a time oh. where we have to oh, be very don't. careful. Okay with these words and I call them okay. now big. So the fat car is now called big ah, convertible okay. big. Big sculptures. Yeah. Because the work the ah, word fat okay. in German means something else. It's never it was never about obesity. Oh. And it was by the way never an insult oh, on obese people. 
it was mm. with the boys you know i come my father was a policeman as i said and there was not much money so i was like not a not a middle class kid i was a lower middle class kid and we had no money my father drove his coda which was not a great car but there were all these rich guys with the rich cars and those cars we called them the fat the autos the fat cars because they were big and important this was more about the wealth the fatness you you understand it's it's right. it's a strange right. we would say like a, we would we would sometimes say if someone like had a lot of money or we call them like a fat cat exactly like so we call these cars a... fat cats so it it, ha- it has this connotation and it's it was never the fat people and so on but on the other side it was uh, it's about changing volumes also because i've realized when i model something in clay or when we model something in clay a figure we add volume or we take volume away when we gain weight or lose weight we also add volume and gain uh, and take volume away so one could say gaining or losing weight is a sculptural work so makes us makes us all um uh the first sculptors because we all work on the sculptural issue because we gain and lose weight constantly so but this is just for the understanding the structure of what is a sculpture what is a sculptural work and then what's also interesting gaining um uh, uh changing volumes changes content because we all know um a slim person and an obese person is viewed very differently from the public with all these uh, strange issues and circumstances. So these were things were were for a certain moment were uh, interesting in my work for me. So I'm wondering, has anyone ever asked you to create, you know, like a a design object or like a chair using your big sculptures as inspiration? No, I got in. I got asked. I got asked and got invitations to think about a, a, a big chair and so on, but I never did it because I think it's it would not help my work. Um, I'm 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 working with design a lot. I work a lot with architecture also because I believe I, I love um, modern modern arch, modern architecture and modernistic architecture and 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 design and so on. But I, I can tell you why. For example, I use design a lot in my work for the drinking sculptures. So I make these. I use these tables from the fifties and sixties, and I make a hole in it, or I, I I cut a leg off, or whatever, and then I I I'm, I make a. It's a performative piece, uh, which is mostly dedicated to one of the big artists who were drinkers, because I've realized that the art world is drinking, the pop world is taking drugs. <laughs> It's a generalization. Maybe it's not true anymore, but it was in the past. Um, uh, it's it's about the excess and the craziness because when you when you spend an entire day and an entire life in the studio you have to go out at one point and drink yourself nearly to death because you need the excess uh so i started to create these drinking sculptures but i only used furnitures from this period and i thought about why do i use only these furnitures from this period and then the the answer popped up because i think it's the first democratic design which was ever made it was in the 40s 50s before it was dedicated and related to an to a very different society for example when you when you look at the austrian big designers uh like adolf loos or like um, um hoffman and otto wagner they were great designers but it was very it was still very traditional design which was related to a bourgeois society or a noble society which was related because austria was a austria hungary was a monarchy for 700 years and the only um mass produced furnitures uh started afterwards Tonnet made mass-produced furnitures, but uh, but they were ma- they were made for the upper class and not for the working class. But this switched around, then interestingly. So that's the reason why I use these furnitures. Yes, and and even though you have these sort of large conceptual umbrellas, there's also uh, the very humble uh, gherkin or pickle that shows up in your work a lot. <laughs> um, sometimes very small, uh, sometimes very large. Where why why the pickle why <laughs> Is where did this come from? Uh, first, it's it's a it's a little bit has to do with my history because um, my history pops up always in, in different in different works like Narrow House and Police Cap and so on. Um, when I was until my fifth year, until my sixth year, I was with my grandparents, not with my parents. And um, my grandfather made a walk every day with me. And when I was a good boy and I was good at the walk, I got a benefit afterwards. I got a pickle. 
<laughs> or a sausage. So that's where the sausages come from. So it's this benefit first. And second, I was always intrigued and always fascinated by basic forms like potato. There are millions, billions of different potatoes, the forms. Every, there's not, I, I would say there are not two potatoes which have the absolute same form in the entire world. And there are billions of them, but immediately you recognize it's a potato. And the same with the pickles and the same with the sausages. So it's this basic form of our world, which is fantastic, which I love, love to work with. I also work with potatoes. And then the last reason, and this reason popped up later, is that it reminds us on a certain male body part. And, you know, we are the male um, um, uh, in a way brought our world into this dramatic position through and through the history because it's a male run history over the ever since ever and here we are our our world is in a very bad condition that it's us who made it it's the male who made it so i make fun about the male part i mean that brings up a, an interesting question uh is the idea of well you know the pickle kind of looks like uh the male body part but also kind of looks like the eggplant emoji on a on an on an iphone which kind of is used <laughs> slang and and today with uh social media things like the one minute sculptures take on new meaning which you brought up before about asking people not to laugh and to take kind of take it seriously but you have no in the end you know in a, in a public institution or anywhere you really don't have on social media you don't really have that kind of control no, you don't. um However, this sort of interaction with the public is seemed to be almost built for social media, but you did it way before social media started. Do you think that social media makes us more connected to the everyday, which is one of the reasons for the one-minute sculptures, or are we too connected? I'm, I'm not sure if social media connects us to the everyday. It connects us to the, to the exception of the everyday, because everybody's showing off. Everybody, everybody is pretending. Everybody is an, is his own actor. So it's. I think it's something else. But with the um, with the one minute sculptures, you know, I said. I think I said it at the beginning. I make um, um, an instruction drawing and invite the public to follow my instructions and realize the piece. For let's say they could, they should uh, put an orange on the head. I never did that, but let's say it's a piece. I put an orange on the head. So if the people come and they play around with the orange, they can do whatever they want. It's fine. But only if they put the orange on their head, it's a piece of mine. So it's open. Huh? It, otherwise, it would be, uh, you know, dictatorship. <laughs> so they they have the choice. Either, either if they want to realize a piece of mine or do whatever and play around it, it's also funny and it's also great. And, you know, what is your... Are, is how it's a better way to to ask this is your work in general a comment on on society in in its total i believe so yes i'm not in any specific piece no i i believe so yes i think absolutely because i work a lot about of cons consumerism and then i work about uh, architecture how how people you know the big, the big things like architecture is defining our world, is defining uh, aesthetic, no, aesthetic levels in different countries, in different areas. It's a social question, a gigantic social question. Housing is for the public and for the people and not only for the rich one. It's, a, it's big questions and I'm very much interested in these questions. And um, also with other terms, I mean, the whole shopping mentality and consumerism, this is very often a theme in my work and philosophy and psychology and yeah yeah I, I think but I'm not a political artist um, because I, I made several pieces about politics I made a piece about George W. Bush and some others but I have to confess that these pieces are bad and I had the feeling if I bring politics into my work it makes my work dirty in a way and I don't want that so I work about general issues and and you know about our society but I'm, I'm more interested in the questions what do I eat tomorrow and what how do I what do I dress tomorrow and not into the questions where do we come from and where do we go 
and uh, at the Tel Aviv Museum of Art, uh, a show that um, I believe is up now and will will probably still be up, hopefully by the time this comes out, um, includes some new one minute sculptures. And I was wondering, and some abstract environments uh, as well. Um, also, your your narrow house is there. Also, I believe. Yeah. You know, how is is the narrow house the something that you've sort of if you transported it to different locations or do you change it at all as you move it around or how does that work? Well, the, 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 uh, this narrow house I've made first for an exhibition at the Ulen Center in Beijing. It's a museum in Beijing. I think I, I did it 2007, if I'm not mistaken. And um, it was first, it was a reaction on a certain situation because they, it's a gigantic museum. I mean, this is really huge. You wouldn't believe an artist had an entire train with the locomotive and all the wagons in, so it was like 20 pieces, it's gigantic. And they invited me for the show and I got the three small rooms, so I felt insulted in a way. And they gave me one very, very, very thin and long room and I said, it's ridiculous, what shall I do? And then I decided I want to show how they treat me, so I, I wanted to show the world that they squeeze me. <laughs> so I thought, what can I squeeze? Uh, a house would be good, but which house? because I wanted that the people go inside, because only when you go, go inside, you have this claustrophobia feeling immediately. So I decided the only house I know good is my parents' house. So I made a copy of my parents' house. And then all of a sudden, the whole history knocked on the door and said, wait a moment, when you make this house, which was built in the 60s, you make a work about Austria, and about, about a certain society, a still post-war society. And this was so exciting. And this was the, this was the outcome. This, was, this is the outcome. So you see this house, from a certain period of a certain country on a certain time, which was a post-war society. The Nazis were still hidden somewhere in, in, in ministerial jobs, and it was a rigid um, uh, life. Everybody was body shaming everybody. It's just unbelievable what, how it was. And so my narrow house, when you go into the house, immediately you feel this you know, claustrophobia, suppression, and this kind of narrowness, and this reflects societies. Doesn't mean that we don't live in a, in in in, in uh, our societies are better, but still they're narrow, and still maybe they're too narrow. And when you when you when you were talking about the the house, and you know, talking about the the sort of the constrained environment that you were in, do you think that? the society that you f surround yourself with now is we, even with all of its consumerism, is it better or than things were in the past? Or do you think society is getting, is the general arc uh, improving over time or no, is it getting worse? I, I, over time? I, I, frankly, I think we, mankind do not learn a lot from history and from the past we always forget the important facts and make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And maybe it's what um, Alighiero Dante, Dante, you know, who wrote the Divina Commedia, um, what he was mentioning. Our world is um, hell and the different circles of Bulgaria and all down. But I think if we accept this, then we understand it better. It's how we are. And that's called maybe human being. We're all a big disaster, and we cannot remember things. But we have to fight for, for equal. We have to fight for certain things, which is so important. For example, democracy is such an important um, invention, and democracy. But democracy only works if it's a balance of all the different heads and ideas and opinions in a state. And that's most important that the balance is upright, that the balance is working. If the balance is not working, if one group, the far right or the far left or the greens or the blue or whatever, becomes stronger and wants to dictate their opinion to the others, then it's a drama. So we really have to keep on going to keep this balance, to include all the opinions and all the ideas to make our societies work. And for this, we have to work constantly, I think. And what's next for your studio? What is the next uh... work? Work, work. <laughs> <laughs> I go, I go back, uh, and I'm full of excitement to work. We we have many. We have next year. We have the next three years are basically booked out with shows, and we have a lot of. I have a lot of new ideas, and I have a lot of works going on. A lot of production and um, exciting. How many? How many ideas and works do you think you have in your head or on the drawing board at, at any given time? Many. 
<laughs> there's, a, there's a Greek saying. When <laughs> I, I met re uh, recently um, a woman. She told me about her parents. And they had so many sheep. And she said, they had so many sheep. You want to know how many? I said, yes, many. <laughs> <laughs> and if, if, I, if I asked you to to write the, uh, we said like an epitaph on your tomb uh, in the graveyard when you pass away one day, when in three words, what would you say? Keep on going. Keep on going. It's keep on going. It's three words, yes. Thank you to Erwin Verm, his son Michael, and everyone at his gallery, Lehman Maupin, for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Thank you.